Welcome to episode 33 of the Seeking the Military Suicide Solution podcast brought to you by the Military Times. I'm Dwayne France. And I'm Doc Shauna Springer. And we'd like to thank you for taking the time to learn more about suicide in the military-affiliated population. To check out all the shows, search for STMSS in the Google Play or Apple App Store, and you can download an app that will allow you to listen to all the episodes, check out the show notes, and share the episodes with someone that you think might need to hear it. Thanks again to everybody for joining us to listen to an honest conversation about service member veteran and military family suicide. One of the problems in addressing suicide prevention is barriers to mental health care. As you've heard from previous guests, suicide prevention is not solely a mental health concern, but there is a need to integrate mental health professionals and community supports to address suicide. Our guest today is going to talk about one way to reduce barriers to getting mental health care, the use of technology and therapy. Shauna, what can you tell us about our guest? Yes, so Matt Mishkind is a faculty member with the Departments of Family Medicine and Psychiatry at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. He serves as the Deputy Director of the Johnson Depression Center, which includes military and veteran programs. His dad was an Air Force doctor, and Matt had his first birthday in Thailand during the Vietnam War. His wife was an Air Force psychologist, and Matt served as a GS civilian, most notably during his time with the National Center for Telehealth and Technology. Matt has over 40 professional publications, primarily in the area of telehealth, frequently speaks at conferences, and is on national committees focused on improving access to behavioral health care. He also puts his academic work into practice by leading two outpatient mental health clinics, both of which have been providing 100% virtual services since March 16th, 2020. It brings new insights to the evolution of care in a telemental health new world. Yeah, I really appreciated Matt's insight. Whenever we were talking about finding someone to talk about this topic, to me, uh, Matt is the first one that came to mind. So I really appreciated our conversation. Let's get into that and come back afterwards to pull out some of the key points. A lot of the things that we've been talking about on the show so far have been about prevention and also intervention. What do we do when someone's in a, a suicidal crisis? And part of the public health model is providing access to suicide safer care. As a clinician yourself, but also as someone who has been an advocate for telehealth for a very long time, reducing those barriers to care is pretty critical when it comes to suicide prevention. Yes, I, I would certainly agree with that. And I think part of you know, what we're talking about is really at two levels is one is if somebody's in crisis, getting them better access to care, but also I would say a lot of people in mental health in general, and especially around suicide prevention, the idea of let's get access to folks so they don't have to get into crisis. And I think that's really where technology and especially telehealth can come into play. Maybe the patients have a little bit more say in how and when they receive their services and that then increases their ability to access those services. And, and that, I think, would help with, with suicide prevention because we're helping to get to a point where people are not in crisis. And, and I think this is, uh, again, something that we've talked about a lot is this idea of a mental health professional being in the same way as a dentist or being as a primary care. You go for your annual checkup to make sure that you don't have cavities, to make sure that you don't have high cholesterol. But 
moving mental health professionals into that same kind of space is a couple times a year checking in with somebody and saying, hey, there's nothing much going on. If I go to the dentist and the dentist finds something in my annual review, then I come back the next week for, for a root canal or what have you. But really, I think that's what you're talking about is reducing the barriers to access sooner so that individuals may not get into a place of a, a crisis. Yeah, I think that's part of the thing is we have on the physical health side, insurance companies, I mean, it's pretty inexpensive these days and, and fairly accessible to get a, a wellness check. Everybody basically gets a wellness check at this point. We do not have the same in mental health. So I think it'd be great to have regulations that would support that. But also, this is again where telehealth would come in. And I think the beauty of telehealth, especially from a mental health perspective, is kind of like we're talking right now, is we're looking at each other, we're talking to each other. This is a live interaction. I think this would be a great way to be able to provide fairly efficient mental wellness checks for everybody. You get a 30, maybe 45 minute conversation with a provider. You do it like this. It's pretty accessible. You can do it from your home, maybe even your office, something like that. And I think that would then help people a lot because you're right. Something triggers or something comes up during this conversation. Then you have somebody immediately who could say, hey, it sounds like maybe we need to get you a referral to a higher level of care or, hey, I know somebody else who specializes in something I think that's going on with you right now. Let's, let's see if we can get you over to see them. That would be, I think, a beautiful addition to our system that we, we currently do not have. And, and unfortunately, I don't see pathways right now for that coming on board anytime soon. This is something that you've worked with for a very long time, advocating for telehealth and, and really setting up telehealth programs. But what's the hesitation? Why are people not willing to get on board with telehealth, either from the patient side or the provider side? I think in today's world, there's not as many hesitations. A lot of the generation now has grown up more with technology. A lot more providers have grown up with technology. I think you're looking at historical hesitations. For a while, there was concerns about safety. And actually, with suicide prevention, there was, there was concerns about well, what happens if, if I'm on a video call with somebody and they say, I'm going to go kill myself and they hang up on me. What, what do we do? And there was a lot of fear around that. We now have research in place that suggests we can handle that. We have guidelines in place that kind of account for that. So I think we've gotten over that initial fear. Some of the other hesitations historically have been around technology. So up until even five, maybe seven years ago, to do real telehealth, you had to buy these really expensive, what we call the VTC systems. And typically when we'd go around and do evaluations of how programs are going, they basically would take us to the closet and say, well, this is where our system is, right? Because they bought this expensive system that nobody could ever really get to the return on investment to use. But you had these big systems, you had networks that were less reliable. So you'd have dropped calls and people would get really frustrated with that. And for a while, it was kind of a one trial I don't want to do this type learning where you get on there and the call drops once and people will be like, see, that's why I don't do this, right? Because it, it doesn't work. I think we've gotten over a lot of that now these days too. So I think there's still some historical hesitations there. From a insurance perspective, a lot of states now have parity laws that will say you have to pay for telehealth much as you'd pay for in-person care. But if you look at the federal payers and TRICARE has really done a much better job. The VA systems do a much better job. 
but Medicare is still fairly behind the times. And up until recently, and this is where COVID does come in, you had these, these limitations on where a patient could be. And that really, that really made it not accessible for people to use telehealth with Medicare. I think there's a lot of historical reasons for it, but I'd say today moving forward, most of the technologies that we use are actually consumer driven. So people are used to using Zoom for non-healthcare meetings. People are used to using FaceTime. People are used to used to interacting in this way. So it's not so foreign to people anymore. Providers now are also used to using them and, and they're much more streamlined into somebody's practice. So I think the real barriers moving forward are around regulations, not, I don't think as much around people's willingness to engage in telehealth. You see, that's interesting to sort of see that shift and, and you bring up sort of this generational hesitation. I recall several years ago, a report on VA mental health came out and it said that younger veterans, no surprise, are more comfortable using technology, not necessarily face-to-face, but also text and call and app-based technology for mental health than older veterans are. Not exclusively. My old man was on Facebook long before I was, right? But is that on the client side, had you seen the clients more likely to adopt this sooner than maybe the providers are? So anecdotally from our own experience, and then the research also shows that patients typically are more readily adoptive of telehealth than providers are. So that's something that we've seen across the board. From a generational perspective, it's interesting. If you were to look at the generations, yes, and you just had a conversation with a, say, a younger veteran versus an older veteran, or just somebody who's younger versus somebody who's, we'll call them more experienced in life. If you just ask them, the younger person would probably be like, yeah, yeah, totally. That makes a lot of sense to me. What we've then found in practice is once you do maybe a test Zoom call with somebody of any generation, a lot of that then goes away. And what we've seen over the last few months, because our clinics have completely gone to virtual services, and that has been also with our Medicare population since some of the regulations have temporarily changed. Have we spent a little bit more time doing test calls with our Medicare patients? Probably. But once then we start to do the therapy, it's basically the same across the board. And so I think it's just really getting somebody who's not quite as familiar with the technology. You show them something 10, 15 minutes, and then they understand it, they get it, that they're able to access it. And we've seen actually very high acceptance and satisfaction rates with our Medicare population too. So part of it is just, I think, having people engage in the technology. And we've seen that from the provider side too, is a lot of times on providers, you'll hear something about rapport. Well, how could I possibly develop rapport with somebody over technology? And we'll come back and say, well, do you talk to your kids, right? Do you talk to your parents? I mean, do you feel any less connected to them if you're you know, on Zoom or FaceTime or something like that with them? It's very similar with healthcare. And then if you do a, a trial call, a lot of times you'll almost see the light bulb go off and people are like, okay, yeah, I get this. It's, this is something I can, I can do. I get it. I get where you're coming from. This idea of barriers to care related to accessing mental health. I mean, those are some of the reasons why people may not adopt telehealth, but what are some of the benefits of telehealth that you've seen either anecdotally or research? I mean, why is this one of the ways um, that we can provide mental health care either pre-crisis to avoid crisis or even somebody who is in a crisis? 
Well, certainly the first thing is uh, I'd say access and maybe it's access and convenience. If you could add those, maybe we come up with a new word with access and convenience together. And really what it is, is it gives the patient more control over their healthcare. And it says to the patient, I can dictate more how, where, when I'm getting my services. And for a lot of people with, even with, with any concerns, but mental health especially, for them to be in a more comfortable place is very important. And if somebody feels more comfortable talking to a provider from their home, why not let them do that? And, and that's something I think would engage a patient. If you're saying to somebody, okay, I'm nervous about seeing a mental health care provider to begin with. Now I have to drive, now I have to deal with parking, now I have to deal with all these additional barriers for me to get this care. There's a lot of fail points there. But if you're able to then provide access to somebody from their home, somewhere where they feel more comfortable, somewhere where they have a bit more control over their environment, that, that's a huge access and convenience point for them. And actually what, we, what we've seen, and I have to look at our current data, but you'll see no-show rates drop dramatically when you move to telehealth. There's some places where your no-show rates can get down close to 5% with telehealth and your cancellation rates also drop dramatically because you've removed those access barriers. The other thing for some folks, and this kind of goes along with sort of the comfort and convenience is if somebody feels more comfortable in their environment, they're gonna be more likely to have a good conversation with you. They may not be quite as guarded. They might be more willing to open up about certain things because they just feel more comfortable. They feel like they're more in control of the conversation. And I think that for a lot of mental health, that's a good thing, right? You want to know what's going on with somebody. You want them to talk to you. You want to be able to have those good conversations. And if they're putting up a wall because they feel uncomfortable, that's going to be more difficult to actually provide them good services. We've seen, if you look at systematically, you see good return on investment with telehealth. So reduced time away from work, because again, you don't have to make those drives. You can even see reduced rents for clinics because they're not having to have as much space available. So you see a lot of good return on investment too. So I think across the board, it can really be a, an amazing asset for not just providers and patients, but for systems too. And, and certainly I'll put the caveat in there. Telehealth is not for everybody, right? There are some folks who don't want to do it, who don't feel comfortable with it. And there's certain situations where you probably want to see somebody in person. So I'm not saying it's a silver bullet for everything, but I think for most of what we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis, telehealth is a great option. We've definitely seen that. There's been some discussion in, in our community about the effectiveness of uh, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing through telehealth, right? We've not really, so those EMDR clients aren't receiving that, right? Because that is a, not necessarily a hands-on, but that is a, a tactile and a visual kind of intervention. Of course, things like transcranial magnetic stimulation, you have to be in the place. Uh, right. Neurofeedback, you have to be in a location. But when it comes to cognitive behavioral therapy or prolonged exposure therapy or any of the other evidence-based things, we have seen that, that that can be provided with the same efficacy or the research is emerging in that. It's interesting that you talk about this idea of control and comfortability because when somebody is, is in a crisis, whether or not a suicidal crisis, but someone's agitated, 
they do feel a little out of control or a lot out of control, and they do feel very uncomfortable. So it's interesting that telehealth is a way to establish some of that and sort of pull somebody back from the brink, so to speak. Yeah, certainly. If you think about somebody in crisis and you say to them, okay, drive down to the crisis center, right? I mean, how difficult is that for somebody who's in crisis to right, to, to go and have to do that? But imagine again, you're in crisis and if you can get them, and it doesn't even have to be on a computer, if you can get somebody on a phone, right? That gives them that control of the environment. That sort of puts them in the place of, okay, I'm making this connection now from where I feel comfortable. It's not going to immediately eliminate the crisis, but I think for the person who is in crisis, that at least gives them one thing that they feel like maybe they are in control of, or at least they have some control of, rather than having to make that drive. I mean, imagine being in crisis and then having to drive in rush hour to get somewhere. You've lost all control there. And I think that's just going to escalate. Or at least if you get them on telehealth, if you even get somebody on any kind of an audiovisual, honestly, even audio, but typically the better thing is an audiovisual uh, connection that that gives them a little bit more access. It gives them a more immediate connecting point, And it gives them, again, at least a little bit of control that they now have. And, and that hopefully will at least eliminate the extraneous factors that somebody does not have to deal with when they're in crisis. And that's another interesting point, right? Yes, whether it's text or chat or even telephonic. Yes, we have the, the veteran crisis line or programs like Vets for Warriors or Objective Zero. But this idea of an audio visual, right? I, I spent a significant amount of the time recently going through a phone tree and thinking, I was like, I wish I could just jump on a Zoom call with this person so we could actually figure out what I'm doing, right? And, and that's sort of, why is the combination of the audio and the visual, just like we're doing here, why do you think that's beneficial? Well, I think there's something with visual. So if, if it comes down to it, if, if you have to choose, obviously you choose audio, right? But I think with visual, you can still make eye contact with somebody. You can still have more uh, of an effective interaction with them. And, and I mean, you're on the phone, even with a friend, right? And you're talking, and you're like, dude, are you even listening to me? <laughs> right? Are you really paying attention to me? So I think when you have that audiovisual connection, it, it brings in that other sense for a lot of people. And you can make that eye contact. You can make sure that the person actually is paying attention to you, that they're not on the phone while they're you know, typing something else or sending an email. So I think it gives that assurance too that, that really that person that you're talking to is 100% engaged with you and they're not distracted by something else. So I think as humans, you know, our social interactions, we, we use as many senses as we can. So as many senses as we can get out there, I think is, is helpful. And it's more of a natural way for us to engage with each other. Yeah, I, I think it's it's true as we've talked and, and as, again, many people have started to find out, this is a way we're sort of thrust into this, right? A lot of mental health providers, whether they were ready or not, now telehealth has become um, standard, if not the, the sole way that people are interacting in the same way. You had mentioned that there's some hope that this is going to continue, that this just isn't COVID-centric, but this is really almost a leap forward in the way mental health specifically is provided. Yeah, as a telehealth advocate, I certainly have some hope there. And if people could say that maybe I'm biased, um, but 
I do think that the hope is that this is what pushes us forward for, again, that access and convenience perspective. That this is what now, when we look at sort of how we live our lives and how we interact with healthcare, that this can become a more seamless aspect of what we do in life. Where if you have a mental health session, you don't essentially have to set aside your entire day to go and see a healthcare provider. Maybe you set aside an hour and a half and that gives you enough time and it can seamlessly interact in your day. So yeah, I do hope that this does make a change. At this point, I don't actually know and, and we're starting to look more into this. I don't know what the right number is, right? So I don't know if you, if you have a clinic, I don't know if 50% of your sessions telehealth and 50% in person is the right number. I don't really know. And maybe there really is no pure ratio there. But really what I hope it does is it opens up the conversation and opens up these access points such that we have the flexibility to determine the ratio that best fits the person. For some people, 100% telehealth is going to be great and effective. For some people, 100% in person is going to be great and effective. My guess is for most people, it's going to be mostly, you know, telehealth sessions with some in-person sessions. I mean, again, I don't know what that ratio is, but my guess is somewhere in between zero and 100 is going to be where, where we land. And I think this will give us a flexibility to figure that out. As mental health providers, we often talk about meeting the client where they're at, and, and telehealth literally helps us do that as well as, as figuratively. I, I really appreciate you coming on the show today to share your expertise with us. Yeah, no problem. I, I appreciate it, and always happy to talk with you, Dwayne, and obviously happy to talk about telehealth and, and the future state of mental health and technology. I really think that for years and years, we've been talking a lot about this, and, and not to not to harp on the COVID stuff, but I do think that this is giving us an amazing opportunity to really move forward and really figure out how as a system, how as a society, and how as mental health providers, we do, like you said, we meet the patient where the patient is. And I think that as we can better fine tune that, I think that we'll start to do better by our patients. I think we'll start to do better with suicide prevention. And I think we'll start to do better by the system. Yeah, outstanding. Thank you. The use of technology in mental health treatment has been around for a while, but it's also a critical element in reducing barriers to seeking mental health care. What did you think about our conversation? I thought it was a really valuable interview to include in this series. Matt is clearly a pioneer and advocate for telehealth. In this interview, he talks about providers' fears that telehealth will create too much distance to allow for rapport to develop. And this was absolutely true in the early days of telehealth. I was also an early adopter of telehealth many years ago in the VA, an area which incidentally I don't think the VA gets enough credit for. When we focus on the concern that telehealth will further distance us, we miss a critical insight about how it feels to do telehealth with a patient. Specifically, one of the things I noticed is that telehealth sessions create an interesting level of access to patients' lives that we would not otherwise see as healers. When telehealth sessions connect us to patients in their homes, we're seeing them in their natural habitat in a way of thinking. Sometimes we see a side of them that would frankly never present itself during the sessions we host in the traditional clinical space. Not only are patients more likely to be comfortable, as Matt points out, 
they're also permitting a level of access to the context in which they live on a daily basis. We might see the space they live in and the ways that others like a partner or a small child interact with them, for instance. And this can be helpful for us to better understand the context of the environments that shape their behaviors. Now, we don't do telehealth to pry into people's lives, but it's also true that we might pick up on some things that can make all the difference in understanding our patients. That's entirely accurate. One of the things I think that, that people have heard me say is that creativity is important in post-military life. So I've had clients who are working on artwork that they may not bring into the office in a therapy session. Show me. Here, take a look and, and walk there. It was in a thing the other day in which uh, somebody, he had uh, Komodo dragons and picked up his computer and, and went to go show the Komodo dragons. So, so it is one of those things that if you have that level of rapport that people want to share things with you, which, you know, is therapy, uh, it, it definitely does have that ability to strengthen how we know each other. Yeah. The other thing that Matt pointed out is that telehealth appointments can remove obstacles to care. And he gave the examples of the hassle of driving and parking and spending time traveling to and from therapy. I would add that one of the major obstacles that telehealth may address is mental health stigma. Specifically, for some portion of my patients, the most uncomfortable part of their visit was in the waiting room. Some of them let out an audible sigh of relief when I came to bring them to my office for their session. We spend a lot of time trying to change perceptions of mental health care to decrease stigma, and hopefully these efforts will make positive change over time. At the same time, stigma and fear is a real obstacle for some who would otherwise benefit from support. So one of the things that telehealth does is that it provides a level of confidentiality as someone reaches out for that support. Telehealth gives people cover in a sense, because nobody besides the provider and the patient is privy to their engagement in services. And they can slot a telehealth appointment into their lunch hour in the course of a day at work. They can find a private space, whether it's their office or maybe even their car, and get momentum with their therapy goals in this way by filling it into their life otherwise. And if that's what it takes to get people the support that they need, telehealth and be a way to engage people in care that they would not otherwise seek. That's a great point. I've often described the stigma against seeking mental health support here at Fort Carson. We've had embedded behavioral health for a number of years, 2007, 2008, but embedded behavioral health, meaning that in your unit area, there is a mental health provider. It was a specific location. And I have a Jeep and Jeep is like Legos for big kids. And so I have a very recognizable vehicle that people know that that's mine. Uh, and I'd often say that for many people, it would be okay for the Jeep to be seen outside of a strip club or a bar at three in the afternoon, for example, than it would be sitting in the parking lot of a mental health clinic. And arguably as a happily married man and somebody doesn't go to bars at three in the afternoon, those aren't helpful for me. Whereas going to a mental health clinic might be, but that stigma does exist. And there would be that judgment, that peer judgment of the embarrassment of people of they know my car and I don't want everybody driving by and knowing that I'm going to the head shed. So that is something that uh, is a very effective way to reduce the stigma while still getting the benefit of treatment. And it certainly goes up through all of the ranks 
I remember, I don't know if it came up on the podcast interview we did with Major General Mark Graham, but he shares a story sometimes when he gives keynotes about the difficulty of walking into that first appointment to get the support. So it's definitely something that affects people of all ranks to think about what will others think. Now, hopefully that'll change over time and we'll just put it in the category of this is my pit crew. I've got my person that does this service for me. I've got my tax accountant. I've got my lawyer and I've got the person who works with me on the emotional challenges that all of us face as humans. But until we're there, telehealth, I think, could be a way around this. Yeah, I agree. And especially where we're at right now as we're recording this, that it is everybody is using the technology platforms for a number of different things. But I think that this has been a leap forward definitely in how we provide mental health treatment. And I think it's a critical aspect in addressing mental health, which then, of course, supports suicide prevention. So we appreciate everybody taking the time to check out the show. Make sure to take a look at the show notes, which you can find at veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash STMSS33, or by downloading the app by searching STMSS in the Apple app or Google Play stores. In the show notes, you can get the links to everything we talked about in this episode, as well as finding the show on militarytimes.com. As a reminder, you can ask us questions and let us know what you thought about the show by going to our Facebook group, moderated by the outstanding D. James, by going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash group. Just a reminder that the guests and reflections on this show are for informational purposes only and should not be considered professional advice. While Dwayne and I are mental health professionals, we are not your mental health professionals. We always recommend that you discuss these things with a licensed clinician. You can find out more about the work that Shauna is doing by checking out her latest book, Beyond the Military, A Leader's Handbook for Warrior Reintegration, and the work that I'm doing with my latest book, Military in the Rearview Mirror. Both are available on Amazon and we'll have links to those in the show notes. And always remember, you can connect with the Veteran Crisis Line by calling 1-800-273-8255 and pressing 1 chat online with them at veterancrisisline.net or texting 838255. Thanks again for joining us to talk about seeking the military suicide solution and make sure to follow Military Times on social media to keep up with the latest shows. Join us next time for another great episode. And until then, remember, you're not alone ever.